Hey there, everybody. This is your host, Sean King, with My Youth on Record. Today, we're interviewing one of our dear friends, the rapper Sage Francis. Hope you enjoy. I, do, I don't know why, but I felt the, the plight of the artists I was listening to. I really, you know, made me curious about the country I was living in, and it gave me a head start on a lot of the social issues that we all have to deal with, um, you know, as we get older and we see how certain communities are treated, why and how do we fix things or address things. And yeah, it was, a, it was my teacher, man. Hip hop was my best friend. <laughs> Welcome to My Youth on Record, a podcast where musicians share the music they created as teens and the stories behind their songs. My name is Mona, and I'm super excited to be joining Sean King as your co-host for another season of My Youth on Record. Joining us today in the studio is our good friend, Sage Francis. Sage grew up in a rural community in Rhode Island, where he forged his own path as a hip-hop artist. He shares with us the start of his journey as a lone wolf hip-hop fan and what inspired him to begin rapping at the young age of eight years old. Sage Francis, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor and a pleasure, and it's good to see you again. You too. Haven't seen you in years. Yeah. And lots happened. Yes. One of the things we do on this podcast is that we like to look all the way back to the very first moments of creating and basically the 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 beginning of becoming an artist Mm -hmm. the beginnings of becoming professional and you have brought a song that we'll hopefully listen to later but um do you want to first tell us about like where you specifically where you grew up you talk about the east coast yeah well i grew up in northern rhode island for the most part in at the end of a dead end road it was a dirt road was not a neighborhood i'm an only child So I spent a lot of time by myself, and that is the origins of my rap career because I spent so much time obsessing over hip-hop but being all by myself and learning to write and record myself however I could. And it's not like I come from a family of musicians who had any idea how to make this stuff work, so I just was really making it up as I went along. And friends... None of them had the same ambition as I did. No one really cared. No one even liked rap. So I, it was my little thing, all to myself. And it was tough to find hip-hop records, which I think inspired me to to record myself just so I would have more rap, <laughs> you know? You couldn't, it's like stores didn't have hip-hop sections or anything like that. And it was very difficult to access hip-hop. Thankfully, we had a college radio station um, in Boston that I was able to uh, listen to, but it was like one hour every Saturday night. And I had like, like forced myself awake to press record on my boom box just to, you know, and then fall right asleep and then listen to the you know, the show for the rest of the week. Um, I still have those tapes. And that's where I, I, I got a lot of my information and also instrumentals to rap over because if they left a beat playing for a few bars, I could then make a long instrumental out of it with two tape decks. And uh, I had no idea how to make beats. I straight up always would just steal other people's instrumentals to make my own songs. And I still have a lot of that material. Don't know what to do with it. I don't want to put, like, I put some of it on mixtapes, but 
it's just funny to listen to because it's just like this young kid trying to emulate his favorite rappers who has no idea what he's talking about a lot of the time. Um, <clears throat> you know, my rapper, the rappers I listened to lived adventurous lives. I was, I was not living an adventurous life. I wanted to tell fun stories, but what do I do? I kind of just had to use my imagination. Um, how old were you during this I was time? eight years old when I first started rapping, and... The song that we're going to play later, I think I was 10 years old. I had just gotten the De La Soul album, Three Feet High and Rising, and one of the the beats on there, or one of the songs starts off with the beat, so I was able to do what I just mentioned, do a tape-to-tape uh, loop of that in order to make my own instrumental and rap over it. And uh, and yeah, I sh- it was for my mom, and I wanted to... I wanted everyone to love rap, you know, and no one really did. Everyone was very curious or cautious about it. It felt kind of punk rock back then, too. I mean, I remember when that record came out Mm. and getting it and getting my hands on it. It just felt like it still felt a little bit punk rock. Well, even the fold out, the sheet inside had comics, uh, like crudely drawn comics, but a fold out thing. Just everything about it was very interesting to me and not what... I was seeing anywhere else. That's what hip hop just had such a unique thing about it that I was drawn to, and I couldn't understand why everyone else wasn't in, as in love with it as I was. So for I spent quite a while trying to get my friends to be as pumped about hip hop as I was, but nah, it was a rock and roll town. It was a heavy metal town, and eventually I found some some kids to rap with. But that was when I was like thirteen or fourteen, and that's when we started hitting up clubs and just doing talent contests and stuff like that. And it was also the black power movement, um, black nationalism, uh, very Afrocentric hip hop. And I come from a very white town. So that again, people were like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you listening to? And and I don't, I don't know why, but I felt the, the plight of the artists I was listening to. I really, you know, made me curious about the country I was living in. And it gave me a head start on a lot of the social issues that we all have to deal with, um, you know, as we get older and we see how certain communities are treated, why and how do we fix things or address things. And, yeah, it was, a, it was my teacher, man. Hip-hop was my best friend. <laughs> Hip-hop and karate. <laughs> did, you feel like, did you feel like other kids in school were picking up on any of the, on this, like, rap movement and... I mean, clearly, like, once the Beastie Boys hit, it was, like, kind of omnipresent. Yeah. Even when, I guess, Beastie Boys, I was reluctant to listen to just because they were white. And they had a rock sound, and I hated rock. I straight up hated rock. I hated electric guitars, which is ironic because now I think of, like, the Run DMC albums were full of electric guitars. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But the Beastie Boys image was not what I wanted to to really be in my wheelhouse. And eventually I came to adore the Beastie Boys. I eventually, my mom bought me the tape for Easter. I remember that. And uh, I've told this story a lot. And my I don't think my mom's ever confronted me about the story. But I swear she was like, here, listen to some white people. <laughs> So that's why I didn't listen to it for so long. I just was like, nope, nope, I don't want that. Because I think she just was so confused as to what the heck's going on with me. But you felt like it was rebel music, but at the same time you still wanted her to enjoy 
what you she you wanted her to appreciate what you were appreciating. Yeah, I, at first until it became a thing that could be taken away from me if I was doing bad in school or if I did something that wasn't. I don't know. If I misbehave, they want to blame it on rap music, you know. So if it became a tool to be used against me, then I started hiding it <clears throat> all the time, and I didn't want to share it. And I, it was just something for me, and uh, the, um, that did happen. But the beast, the Beastie Boys thing, I ended up falling in love with the Beastie Boys. Always wanted to be a member of the Beastie Boys, and the Epic Beard Men, I think, is the closest I've ever come to having a Beastie Boys ish type. You know, we get to play off of each other, you know, and, 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 and I've always wondered how they wrote their songs because they have three voices coming in. Like, who wrote all that? Like, they didn't sit in a circle and now you say a line. Now you, I, someone had, I just wish I was a fly on the wall when they were creating all those songs. Eventually, Sage was able to find some fellow hip hop fans. They formed multiple crews and began participating in rap battles that were memorable to say the least. But it wasn't always fun and games. In fact, fun and games were the least of Sage's worries in his artistic process. As a special bonus, he shares with us a touching Mother's Day rap he created for his mother at 10 years old. I'm just imagining when you first started out, did you did you think that you were eventually going to be a part of a crew or was it like was it kind of like i mean in the in the very early days you're probably just rapping just because yeah like, like, hey, i want to try this out yeah no i wanted to force my friends into a rap group but they didn't want to rap i just stuck to my guns did my solo thing eventually i did find a crew of kids to rap with and we had a crew in junior high uh from the town over it was called word of mouth crew um we had a crew called the secret service and that was when I was in college. And that was still the same group of kids from Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and other, I guess, other parts of Rhode Island where it felt like a conglomerate and we would do shows. And finally it felt like, all right, this is my mix of people. We're all, we all like the same type of hip hop and it's popping. Like we were doing really well. We were doing the battles. We were Rhode Island kids who would go to Boston and kind of raise hell as, as Rhode Islanders because Boston, is not trying to feel Rhode Island. To to, to Boston, Rhode Island is it's what like Boston. That's what New York, you know, like New York looks at Boston a certain way. Boston looks at Rhode Island a certain way. But we were going out there and saying, I don't know if I could swear, you but like swear, fuck yeah. all y'all. Yeah, we fucking we're the shit. Like we are we are a small tight knit group of people, and we will mess up your whole your whole shit every week. We're gonna come here, battle you guys, and win, and that's that. And we did that. We had we had we had an incredibly talented crew. But as you well know, and a lot of people will learn, and I think it's important for people who listen to this podcast to know, that some of the most talented people I've ever known in my life could not make a career out of music. When I saw the opportunity that I could make a living off of, of music, and I quit my job at Ben and Jerry's, I had to make sure I knew for sure I can pay at least two months' rent before I quit my job. So. And that happened, and I hit the ground running, and I never, I didn't stop for over a decade. It was just nonstop work. And that meant no social life. That meant no friends. That meant every relationship being ruined, every single one of them, for the sake of my career and for what I had to do in order to live as an artist. You have to make sacrifice. You there's, definitely do. There's no partying. For, there was no partying. There was no having fun. There was straight up, Prove yourself over and over. 
Get your name out there as best as possible. Make sure people have an opportunity to support you financially. Um, so I started the, my website early on, and people could just send cash and tell me what they wanted to buy. And I built it from there. I built my whole record label like that. Strange Famous Records came about just as me putting out mixtapes. But then when I figured out the infrastructure of, of the music industry, then I had the opportunity to release records from other people that I enjoyed. Um, and now the industry has changed so much since that point, we have to re figure out what the heck are we supposed to do now? Because there's such digital-based, stream-based uh, listeners out there that we just have to figure out where our attention needs to go in order to be viable as a record label and still live off of our music even though people don't buy it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> let me let me segue for a second here bringing it back to that to the song that that we were talking about. I'll have to admit I've heard it and um it's amazing. Why don't you set it up for us? All right, this is the Mother's Day rap. This was my gift to my mom. She taught me how to rhyme. We, we played rhyme games when I was a kid, so I felt like it was only appropriate once I started rapping to give her this as a gift on Mother's Day. And um, if you know the original De La Soul song, their rhyme pattern is is different. It's not what you typically get from a hip-hop song. So it's like A-A-B-B-A. The rhyme scheme is like that. And that's what I'm most impressed with with myself as a 10-year-old to lock that down as best as I could, but to tackle that. And uh, it's a short it's a short song, but made my mom cry, and I love my mom. Mother's Day is coming up, so I dedicate this to her and also to my fiancé, who's a wonderful mother. Feel free to comment. We're going to roll um, an amazing song here. Oh, and I recorded, I had to play music from one radio into another and just rap in between the radios. <laughs> <laughs> so it, there was no microphone or anything like that. I, I just had to jerry-rig my whole setup. Was in it order one, of those, to, one of those boom boxes that had like the microphone just above the speaker kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was an internal mic. Yeah. So like it acted as a tape recorder. Um, I still have that boom box actually, but all right, here we go. Mother's Day rap. 80s. As you can tell, my voice has changed quite a bit since then. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and so, this is 10 years old. You kind of mentioned a little bit about um, some, like, rap battles, but I'd love to hear from 10 years old uh, into your 20s, so, like, those teen years, pre-teen years, um, 
what was that like for you? Like, what is the um, story there? Well, musically, I guess once I hit 13, well, between 10 and 13, I was still trying to rap like my favorite rappers. So I had, I had songs that sounded like Slick Rick. I had songs that sounded like Too Short. And I was trying to rap like them and say the same things that they said. Um, and then my biggest influence around when I was 13 was the Fushnikins and the fast rap and just doing double time. Um, like what I do on the Escape Artist song where it's like, and in effort to make a mostly way to find him life, I decided to give him a look, like real fast rap. And that's, I was obsessed with that for years. And that's what would really impress the crowd. So they see this white kid, young white kid, step to the stage. And obviously, I think, I don't need to say this, but back then, if you're going to talent shows or contests that are hip-hop related, it was pretty much mostly all black people. So you, if you're a white person stepping into that scene, you stick out like a sore thumb. You get called Vanilla Ice right away, and they tell you to go hop on a skateboard. So you had to blow their mind right away and make sure that you know they would sit straight up and like, oh, this, this kid's serious. So I would just hit him with the fast rap right away because no one was doing that around where we were. And um, and that's that's how I started winning a lot of contests. But that also, that's trickery to me. And I look back on it now and I see other people still doing it where they find something. It's just, it's kind of gimmicky. It's like, all right, I get it. You can rap fast, calm down. You know, I get it. It's, it's a trick. You, you can't do it all the time. You pick your spots to do that. It's like a guitarist who just solos all the time. It's like, calm down, buddy. You know, like, find a groove. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we would sneak out. <laughs> I would sneak out. <clears throat> I had friends who drove. We would drive into Providence, uh, do rap battles, um, sometimes get abandoned at certain places, sometimes find ourselves in very bad situations. Um, but I, I was just the thrill of being an unknown person in these spots stepping in the mic and getting props from people or winning a contest that that rush um was huge and i haven't felt that rush in a long time but i remember when i first when i won the first one and like the dj gave me a shirt that he signed that was the prize i just i couldn't sleep that night i just was so I just had these dreams of like, wow, I'm really going to do this. You know, this is really going to happen for me. This is the beginning. And it kind of was, even though it took a decade before it was, it was actualized. Um, and also there was no, I, act, I didn't, I didn't truly believe I could have a career in hip hop because I was a white kid from Rhode Island. And I was also a very straight laced kid from Rhode Island you know, and all the hip hop was just, uh, especially when gangster rap hit and all, all that, wasn't me. So all the stuff I liked, I was like, this isn't me. And then to figure out how to be me and have it be enjoyed by others, that was a huge trick. Uh, not not a trick. It was a huge find for me. Very very big discovery, and it took a long long time. Just. And it's important building your fundamentals by emulating your favorite artists and and practicing that way until you find your own voice. To find your own voice is, is, is incredibly important, and not everyone does. Not everybody finds their real voice, their true voice, who they are, and are able to put it on record or express it through song. They can sound like a lot of other people, and they can tell things that work within 
a template that's been created in their genre. But um, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I fell into the spoken word community when I did. And that was when I was in college. And that exposed me to different voices. That exposed me to different topics. That exposed me to um, like queer culture, which I had, I, I was, I came, like I said, I come from a very lily white town. Nobody was gay. No way, you know. And then I'm, I'm like, whoa, this guy is openly gay. It like blows my mind. I never even thought of it. I never thought I'd even be around a gay person. Of course, now you look back and like, oh, he was gay. She was gay. And they're out now. But the small town mentality was, it was everyone was suffocating over what they're supposed to be. Even me, like I was, <laughs> the whole rap thing, just me trying to be different was trying to get out of that, that mold that you felt like they were just pressing you into this mold. You're like, no, no, that's not me. And um, so the spoken word, when I started to incorporate that into my music and the subjects and being vulnerable in hip hop, being vulnerable in my writing, not just bragging, not just talking about how dope I am or how, you know, the battle stuff that drove me through all the early years to finally get out of that and have a voice where I was speaking for people who normally don't get to be heard. I felt like that was very important in my career and opened up my fan base. It wasn't intentionally like I need to find a bigger fan base. Maybe I need to talk about self-harm you know just i just i think just being around the spoken word community and seeing people be vulnerable i was like i want to do that with my music during sage's interview we had the honor of hosting students from colorado high school charter let's listen in on the advice sage gave them as they approached their musical careers So we have some Colorado High School Charter uh, kids in the booth. Um, we teach uh, their music class here five days a week. Um, we're wondering if you can give them a shout out and potentially um, what is some advice that you would give these young creative people? Shout out to Colorado High School Charter. My name is Sage Francis. I'm not your father, but I will be your friend. Here's some advice. <laughs> Think twice, <laughs> thrice. That's um, that's me on the mic. Uh, no, honestly, real advice. Always have a fallback plan. Always have a fallback plan. You have one. I I well yeah, I do, I do. But I've this my my career is twenty years strong now. So I'm I'm I just well, ask kids. I just I fear people who throw too many eggs in one basket and they the music career thing is the hardest probably the hardest thing to to break through and live off of i agree without it ruining your life well well, and you have to ruin your life sometimes for it to work and i don't want everyone to ruin their life If, if you have that drive like i had that drive Go for it. Figure and and don't sign contracts willy nilly, and and don't let people take advantage of you when when you can feel it in your gut, and you're like, ah, I'm not really feeling this cat. Trust your gut, because I I I went against my gut early on, and I knew I shouldn't, but I thought just because someone was interested in me, that was cool. I was like, oh, cool. Finally, you know, I'm getting some recognition. But people, when they see talent there are leeches out there that want to just stick to you and they will hold you down. So be very careful who you have in your circle. Those are, those are some of the biggest 
pointers I'd, I always give because I've just seen how it goes wrong too much. Absolutely. I'm wondering if, like, a question we ask guests is, like, trying to put your, yourself in the perspective of the 10-year-old Sage or 12, 14. What would that boy think about where you're at now and, and, and your business decisions and your, your artist decisions? Yeah, I think about that sometimes just because the music industry is so different from when I was 10. And my idea of what being a rapper was at 10 was to be on Def Jam and tour with Public Enemy. And I have toured with Public Enemy, so my 10-year-old self is probably shitting himself, and as I was during the tour. Um, but uh, I think he would be very surprised to see how little music is actually in a music career when you have to live off of it, because I would say 90% of my energy and efforts go into things that are not creative, they're not musical, they are promotion, they're handling business, it is accounting, it is, I handle as many tasks as possible to cut out as many middlemen as possible to keep as much money as possible, because I know the money won't flow forever and I need a good nest egg to retire on, and not a lot of people consider that, you never, you can't, well, maybe you can tour forever if you're Bob Dylan, but if you're not able to do that, you have to consider what to do with the money and not spend it uh, on nonsense once it comes in. I, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, so the first big checks that I got, that got saved. Because um, I'm like, I'm never going to... I can't just get money and, and, and spend it because it's going to disappear. I need to save it. So I just save all my money. And the, eventually I find myself in situations where if I didn't save the money, I'd hit hard times real hard. So be, be fiscally responsible. Um, if, if you're lucky enough to be getting money off of what you do, don't think you need to spend it as soon as it comes in because you're going to see some expenses in your life, man. Invest that money. Well, it's interesting. I was just texting with a friend who's – finding himself in, in a bit of a change. And, and I, I wrote this down he, to quote him. He says, apparently 15 years of touring in rock bands isn't very appealing for office work. <laughs> and I think about that daily. It's like you put all, when you talk about all your eggs in one basket, it's like we get good at these skills that are just bizarre. Yeah. You know, learning how to, learning how to drive with people and get along with people and hang out in airports and stuff. Yeah. Well, I took four years off. I thought I was done music forever. Not recording music, but I didn't ever want to tour again. I had lost my father that year. I'd lost, we lost Idea. And there was a lot of, B lost his father that year um, while we were touring. Both, we lost both of our fathers while we were touring. And I just was sick of it. I was like, I don't want to, I'm sick of being away all the time and not having connections with people. Not like, I, I want some stability in my life and I wasn't feeling it. Um, and I'm still, I'm still, I'm still trying to get that. I'm still trying to get that. I can't wait for these tours to be over. D touring becomes more and more difficult because there are so many artists now. It is so easy for people to record music and get it out there on all the digital platforms. So um, venues are getting booked up left and right more than ever. You have to, you have to, if you plan on doing a national tour, at least six months ahead of time is when you have to start locking down the venues. And that takes a lot of foresight to know what you're going to be doing in six months, what record's going to be ready. Are, is your album going to be out at that point? Like you just, <laughs> I hate that you have to think six months to a year ahead of time to really do things properly and make sure it's done well and make sure all the right people are on board who are going to take care of their side of the business. And uh, yeah. 
It's like we actually uh, I'm now living in New New London and um we're looking for a house, we're looking for some stability and I promised my partner, I'm, I'm never going to do these long tours ever again. I'll do short ones, make sure we can get our bills paid, because honestly, the, the best way to make money is to tour. That's really where all the money's at, and that's how you sell merch. I mean, yeah, we sell it through our website, but so much of that money goes to, the, to postage. <laughs> you know, like people complain that things are so expensive. I'm like, we're not making that money. That goes to the U.S. Postal Service. <clears throat> so you get to a show, and finally you can start slinging shirts. You just be, basically become a shirt salesman and a hoodie salesman and a hat sales. That's it. I'm sure, like, I travel door to door. So I'll do, I'll do little short runs, make sure I can, I can still uh, get the merch sold and get some, some money that we need. But we'll figure out other ways. We'll see. It's a very, it's a big mystery. I have no idea what's, what to do moving forward. Never thought I was going to get married ever in my life. Now I'm in a whole new headspace. Yeah, right on. Oh, well, I'm so happy that you were able to stop and spend a couple minutes with us. Um, it's my pleasure. It's good to Denver meet you. Denver loves you. My youth on record loves you, and and we wish you the best on the rest of this tour. Thank you. Stay healthy. Yes. Be safe. Get home <laughs> to your family. All right. Well, it was nice meeting you, Mona. Pleasure seeing you as always, Sean. And goodbye, youth on record. You're lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sage. My Youth on Record is proudly brought to you by Youth on Record, a Colorado nonprofit organization where local teens are empowered to find their voice and value by working with local musicians as their educators. Teens and Youth on Record's programs are working to be both the next generation of creatives as well as community leaders. They do this through music, poetry, and storytelling. My Youth on Record is one of their newest programs. Learn more at www.youthonrecord.org. A big shout out to Oso Motley for our theme music this season. They came to the studio in Denver, jammed with some of the Youth on Record students, and we couldn't be happier. Thanks so much. Thank you.